everybody. This is Kim Nicolaitis with Advent Christian Voices, um, coming to you once again here from Waikiki in Honolulu, uh, Hawaii, on the 14th, I believe it is, of uh, May 2018. And we're continuing our little journey through the uh, Gospel of Luke, and I'm going to be uh, reading to you a little portion of uh, that gospel, actually probably continuing it's somewhat where we were uh, last week, which was uh, in the first chapter where uh, Mary went to um, visit her cousin, Elizabeth, after getting the news, the announcement that uh, she was going to bear the Son of God uh, by the angel Gabriel. And we just uh, saw that introduction last week where that happened. And um, so, so maybe the best thing for me to do is just to jump right in and read to you uh, the portion of scripture that I have in mind here, which is, uh, typically known as uh, Mary's uh, Magnificat uh, for several reasons. And, uh, well, why don't I just read that to you then? <clears throat> so I'm going to start from verse 39 and just run down through. Actually, 39 is where um, Elizabeth greets her and then run down through that. So in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Mary was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who, who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Uh, and that brings us to the Magnificat. And Mary said, uh, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. So there we have it. And this uh, last portion I read to you is what is normally known as uh, Mary's Magnificat. And that's called from the, from the Latin word, which we translate here into the English Standard Version into magnifies which is what Mary exclaims her soul is doing in regards to her view 
of the Lord. She has just arrived at her on her cousin Elizabeth, and after making a somewhat hazardous three or four day trip from her home in the town of Nazareth, where she has experienced an angelic visitation, announcing to her the vital role she would play in God's plan for the redemption of the world. So we're going to try to imagine what it may have been like for her going through her mind during that trip. We may be, we can be pretty sure that she was reiterating in her mind over and over again, no doubt, the words contained in the message given to her by the angel, and they were what that actually meant. Coming as she did from a Jewish background, to set the stage for what it is that she actually exclaims here in the, uh, the Magnificat. Basically, what she's being said to her by this angel is that she is going to be the mother of the Son of God, and this baby would be growing in her womb, would be himself, nonetheless, really, nothing really than God himself in the flesh. In other words, <clears throat> what she was hearing from this angel was that God was going to become a man, and he, in so doing, he was going to save the world from its current plight of being under the dominion of sin and death and all the other horrors and problems attendant to that forlorn condition. That is, if she understood it correctly, for that's exactly what the implications were of what it was that she said to him. So she has to try somehow to reconcile that with everything she's already been taught so far in her Jewish tradition. And that would be something that would be a, monu a monumental achievement for anyone, let alone this young, unwed and surely by now pregnant Jewish teenager. So she probably was not able to entirely sort all these things out in her mind. But what she did know was that there must have been a lot of inconsistencies in what she may have been taught so far in her understanding of the scriptures. The Jews to this day have never and never, so it would seem, except the fact that God could possibly become a man. There were, in fact, no religions then nor since that have believed in such a concept, at least not in the kind of deity represented here by the Judaic religion. Such a thought was not only contrary to all that they would have believed, but was contrary to everything which the Greeks or the Romans or the Eastern religions of the day espoused as well. What all of these cultural and traditional philosophies, ideologies, and religions did believe in was that there was, in fact, a very insurmountable barrier that existed between what is known as the realm of the material or physical world and the spiritual world or the cosmic sphere, which was, in a sense, behind the physical universe and which upheld it, oversaw it, and was in every respect superior to it. The most supreme goal of life would be to overcome the physical so as to ascend or transcend, you might say, to the spiritual realm, which was the hope of those who look forward to a life after death or believed in some kind of immortality of the soul. Were we to ask ourselves the question, what was it about the cultural trends occurring then in that milieu or since, in fact, that gave rise to this very unique belief of Christianity, we'd certainly find no evidence to suggest that anyone ever would believe this idea that it would be possible for the almighty creator of everything to actually humble himself to the point of becoming a finite, weak, frail, vulnerable human being. And in this case, a single cell actually, for a time in the womb of Mary, the most vulnerable form of life there is. Well, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that the reason he chose to believe in Christianity is that there is absolutely no reason for anyone anywhere to ever actually believe that this is something that God could or, in fact, would actually do. 
And given the cultural traditions that were entrenched in society at that time and since, for that matter. And yet it did. <clears throat> the only reasonable explanation for people to ever believe in it was because it was true. And Mary here is the first one to be challenged with the notion that this could be true. And that was why I thought her experience was one in which all true Christians would have something in common with. That is in the process of overcome the overcoming the obstacles, you might say, which presented themselves to one's choice and believing on that matter. You might recall we mentioned the mental obstacle, which required some very serious application of your mental energies, thinking, actual serious mental thinking requires an enormous amount of energy. And most people, believe it or not, don't ever apply themselves or engage themselves in its exertion if they can avoid it. Um, you probably, I don't know if you know this, but the uh, aorta, it's a large artery in the, uh, the heart, the largest by far, contains as much blood as all the other arteries that go to the rest of the body almost. Well, that just delivers blood to the head because uh, it needs that uh, supply of oxygen and other nutrients because the brain is designed to use just as much energy as it is the rest of the body. You know, I, I'm surprised, but I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but uh, it would seem to me then, logically speaking, that if somebody wanted to lose weight, the best way to do it would be to employ himself in the act of thinking. So, what was it that was Mary was doing when first approached? That was what we, should, we said she was doing when she was first approached, remember, by this angel. And this was the first step. It requires intentional, serious thought. It simply requires being willing to apply some serious and real mental energy. Faith in God requires more than that, of course, but certainly not, nothing less. And we can imagine that Mary must have been cogitating on these things in her mind for some time. In fact, Luke tells us in the next chapter, whenever there was an incident involving her son, Jesus, like the time he was found as a young child uh, in the temple engaged in theological discussions with some of the leaders, religious leaders, or even just when the shepherds visited them in Bethlehem to tell the heavenly angelic chorus announcing his birth that Mary treasured up all these things and kept them hidden in her heart. The Greek word can literally be translated that she threw these words together into her heart. In other words, she was always asking the question, what can this mean? So we can surmise that she was very inquisitive. God, I think, enjoys answering and providing answers to some of the deepest questions. But I think sometimes he just wants us to cogitate upon them for a while. So Mary here in her Magnificat is basically exulting in the goodness of God and his justice and his demonstrated faithfulness to the covenant that he had actually established long ago with the father of their nation, Abraham, and in rejoicing at her appreciation of the confirmation and affirmation of these things which she had just received from the prophetic oracle coming out of the mouth of Elizabeth here, of course. Mary had to recognize that uh, just such a divine revelation uh, 
as Elizabeth gave to her was in fact divine because Mary knew Elizabeth could not possibly have known these things without some divine assistance. And beyond the fact that Mary was having this child, what it was that Elizabeth had also said about this child right here in this passage was enough, for instance, to force the early church to come up with the idea of the Trinity, that God existed in three persons while being at the same time one God. That is, that Mary was able to be the mother of her Lord, Elizabeth's Lord, word curios in Greek, translation from Yahweh, while at the same time it was the same Lord which was sent, according to Elizabeth, to Mary to tell her about these things meaning that Mary is to be the mother of the same one who Gabriel gave the message to in the first place she received, and she was still trying to fathom that in her mind. The same one who gave the message to Mary was the one who was in Mary's womb, according to Elizabeth. So I just want to reflect upon a moment, a little bit, the significance of this, as well as by continuing to flesh out some of the whys and whats of the very last thing Elizabeth actually mentions here, apparently, inspired uh, Mary's Magnificent. <clears throat> and that is the blessedness to her, to all really that believe, all whom would believe these things will actually be fulfilled. Uh, and why does such a belief result in such blessedness? And part of the answer to that lies in the fact that we're all created in the image of God. And part of what that means is that we were made for the express purpose of being in relationships, relationships with people, certainly, but first and foremost, relationships with God, even relationships with animals, until we can enjoy such relationships on a level that involves true intimacy. We have missed out on one of the most important reasons for why we even exist in the first place and we'll never experience true blessedness. Why do you think pets, for instance, are so popular, despite the fact that they can be such a nuisance and an inconvenience and they are not really able to fully appreciate us as we need to be appreciated? Well, I think it's because people need someone or something with whom they can relate to on some level, even if they can't relate on, a, on the same level as they would with people. Pets are completely non-judgmental. They give us unconditional love and they even worship us at times, it seems. And for that, we're willing to put up with just about any nuisance they may also entail. The problem with the relationships we have with other human beings is that it's impossible to have any true level of intimacy in such a relationship of the kind that we actually need and for which we were really created until and unless we're willing to uh, generally let down our own defenses. It was once said, I think, that unless you're willing to have your heart broken, you cannot afford to give it away to anyone else. That is, you cannot afford to let anyone else uh, into that place of vulnerability. That is to risk exposing your true self to another is simply to, the cost of ever being able to develop a relationship that entails true intimacy. So if you can, can be content to simply remain in the casket of yourself and never really share who you are with anyone else, you don't have to worry about that. That is about never getting really hurt. However, the more vulnerable you're willing to be with a friend, the greater, the deeper, the closer that relationship can potentially become. The more you're willing to share with each other, the more intimate 
can really be. And when I mention intimacy here, I'm not necessarily talking about physical relationships, but our emotions are inextricably tied up in our identities and who we think we are. And the more we reveal of ourselves in that sense, the more vulnerable we make ourselves, the more our feelings uh, are risk being hurt. It's dangerous, not some place to tread in the open public marketplace, but certainly uh, just with those that we are willing to trust implicitly. Our very greatest need, by the way, is to be counted righteous. And whenever that sense of self-justification is threatened in any way, we will be very quick to retreat into the shelter of our own privacy, our own inner sanctum. So let me try to illustrate this. What is it that destroys relationships? It's when we're accused of something or when we accuse someone else, whether verbally or just in our minds, and neither side is willing to admit any fault, that they're wrong. And we have, that's what we conveniently call irreconcilable differences. And what do we mean by that? I think what we mean simply is that neither party is willing to admit fault. The problem is, frankly, that we're all at fault to some degree, even, even though we don't see it according to the Bible. The only possible way for such relationships to ever be restored is when one party or one person is willing to just let his defenses down and take the heat to admit that he may be at fault <laughs> or he is at fault, even if he thinks it's maybe only 20% due to him, 80% the other guy. But he's willing to take the blame and he's willing to assume in himself the guilt or the cost of that misunderstanding, whatever it was. In other words, he's willing to assume the pain that an assumed guilt imposes, even if it does not, he doesn't really think it's in his own mind that he necessarily was all that much at fault. And the reason he does that, nonetheless, is for one reason, frankly, it's because he values the relationship above <laughs> the insult above the offense that he's willing to incur. And he wants to maintain that relationship. That's the only way to do it. And this is what God did, by the way, when he became a baby, when he became fragile and breakable and capable of being hurt. He let down his defenses. And indeed, he was hurt just about as much as it may be possible to be hurt. And he did it for one reason and one reason only. It was because since we, as his creatures, created in his image. We're created for that express purpose of being in relationship with him. So when God became a child, what he was doing was dropping his own defenses completely. He was allowing himself to be put, in a sense, on the witness stand, you might say, and be cross-examined, be accused, whether justly or not. God became vulnerable to us so that we could have a relationship with him. Or so that our relationship, that is the relationship which our first parents had with him, which was seemingly irreparably breached, could be restored. The one who was unassailably omnipotent was willing to become, in effect, impotent or without defense against the most vicious expressions of human wrath that we might be able to muster. Why? For the sole purpose of restoring those relationships we once enjoyed with him because that was how much we meant to him. The question remains of how much does it mean to you? But what Elizabeth is saying here is that if you can only believe it's true, 
then that relationship can be restored. And you will be blessed. And by that, she means you will be restored. You will have restored to you your fully functioning capacity as a human being in every sense of the word, whether physical, emotional, psychological, social, or what have you. And you will be set free to enjoy, to do, and to become all that God has or will ever intend for you to do or be, which, by the way, is far and away above and beyond anything you may think or imagine possible. You will certainly be set free to restore and develop the kinds of relationships with others on the very same level of intimacy that you were meant to have and enjoy. You can see why Mary is so jubilant all of a sudden. The magnitude of not only the miracle she is carrying in her womb, but the repercussions for the human race are beyond comprehension. And yes, all generations will indeed call her blessed for the role, as small as it may seem, relatively speaking, that she may be privileged to play in God's ongoing saga. Suddenly the cause, which up till then may have appeared so overwhelming, in retrospect, relative to the gift, now seem pretty insignificant, in fact, hardly worth mentioning. Okay, this is just one part of the gift, that God became Emmanuel. That is, that God became God with us, gives to us. It enables us to not only have our relationships restored with God, but gives us the courage to be willing to do whatever it takes to have our relationships we were made to have with others also be able to develop sufficiently and to experience true intimacy in them. Okay, so a second part of this gift and related to that is that it also gives us the courage to face suffering and gives us the comfort in the face of suffering because it tells us that when we see suffering, it's not because we are being judged or disciplined by God necessarily. See, when certain religions and religions see others suffering, they will either say that it's because of God's justice these people are being judged and getting what they deserve because God is just and would never allow such things to occur unless there was a very good reason. That's why, for instance, uh, well, maybe I'm not going to mention that illustration. That would be a little tough. But the point is, in any case, we know that God himself came into this world of sin and suffering as a man and endured every bit of the frustration and disappointment and weariness and pain and suffering that could be possible to imagine. He suffered in every way and every temptation is common to man yet remained without sin. Well, his suffering affords us an opportunity to see that there can be in suffering a redemptive value in that it occurred certainly not on any account of his shortcomings and therefore by association, not necessarily our suffering does, does ours, by virtue of our own misdeeds, occur because of them. Even if we may not be able to see the reason behind them, we can believe and hope it, they, our suffering will be redeemed in some way. So we are given courage in the face of suffering. And for instance, when we see the secularist who sees suffering, he may not say God is judging us but on one hand, but he'll say simply that God is absent or impotent. But because we know that God is still with us, and especially in our suffering, and that he is not impotent, but active in accomplishing the goals one way or the other. So we are strengthened in the face of suffering through our faith in the knowledge of, that God himself came into this world, which he made, and which may seem so filled with contradictions and despair, to give us hope and strength and comfort. We know this 
because not only that he came into the world, but that he overcame it, the world, not through a demonstration of power, but through his own frailty, his own weakness, and through enduring whatever it was the world could dish out, even though it meant being broken and hurt. So we have comfort, because while the agnostic or the secularist may claim God is absent in the midst of suffering and doesn't really care, we know he is not absent. Not only has he come into the midst of our world, but he has promised never to leave us alone as orphans. And because we have comfort, one of the things we can do in the face of suffering is also by the way, the means by which we can afford to admit fault, even if we don't really think we may be the major contributors, whatever may have been the fault, causing a, a breakdown in relationships we have with others that we think are worth redeeming and deepening. Okay, in addition to the ability to afford being vulnerable in order to gain true intimacy and relationships, in addition to the strength and comfort we receive in the face of suffering, that we enjoy on account of the fact that we believe in a God who actually came into our world and shared with us all of its pain and suffering. Another reason for the blessedness Elizabeth exclaimed will be ours, if only we believe, is the renewed passion that will be instilled in us for the establishment or the realization of the ultimate goodness in the created order. You know, in the beginning, God said when he created everything, it was good. It was very good, in fact. And now, uh, because we don't see this barrier between the spiritual, between God's domain and the earthly domain, necessarily. In other words, while most religions, whether Eastern or Hindu or Buddhist, which really have this artificial, really man-made dichotomy in how they view the material realm versus the spiritual realm, and in which the material dimension, as we said, does not possess the same level of value instead of the spiritual, and therefore should not, we should not expect that we would invest as much energy or effort in its investigation or its study or development. It was really not until the concepts of the incarnation found only in Christianity took hold of the Western society that actual, the actual methods of scientific study and investigations of the laws of nature in all of the fields of science and mathematics and the confidence we had in the orderliness of nature okay, um, were studied and developed. The vast majority, by the way, of all the technology and advances we enjoy today really come from the efforts of men, men such as Newton and Faraday and Pascal and Hemholtz and Watts and uh, Ohm and you name it, who were self-described as priests of the universe, parsing the finger of God in the heavens, the earth and the seas. If anyone takes the time to study the beliefs of those early pioneers of science who gave us so much in the knowledge they uncovered through their trials and studies of the natural laws of nature would be amazed that God would care enough about his creation to actually become a part of it as a finite human being instills in those of us who actually even believe in this tremendous confidence of what this, his plans may be for it. And that motivates us to develop it to its fullest potential and to believe that potential yet lies far beyond anything we may have ever so far yet achieved. So we stand on the shoulders of these uh, pioneers, in these fields of science and so forth. So that's just one other reason for the blessedness that Elizabeth exclaimed would be the case for those who believe. 
Because by the way, all those pioneers of science, they were devout believers. And finally, in addition to this vulnerability for intimacy, in addition to this courage in the face of suffering, in, the dish, in addition to this passion to fully develop all of the heretofore unknown and untapped resources of our world, there's at least one more very good reason for the blessedness, which, by the way, Mary exclaims very well in her Magnificat that Elizabeth pronounces upon whomever will only but believe in this most transforming truth, and that is the passion in, that it instills in all who possess it for the quest for justice, for the downtrodden. The founding fathers of the United States of America were in large measure, men who recognize the principles found in the New Testament, believe it or not, the idea that despite the depravity of man's heart, there was still the potential of a redeemed mankind to form self-governing society and not deprived of certain inalienable rights and liberties. Well, why was that? Well, I believe it stems from the idea of a God who is at one and the same time, both omnipotent and yet became breakable for us a God who is able to feel pain and who does feel pain. No other religion believes in that God actually suffered or suffers, whether secularism, Greco-Romanism, paganism, Eastern religions, Judaism, or Islam. None would say he actually became a weak, finite, frail, and yes, even breakable human being. Since Christianity teaches that God is not just concerned about the spiritual, he is not totally spirit anymore. Eastern religions believe the physical is an illusion. The Greeks and Romans actually believe the physical was inferior and bad. And Judaism or Islam will not yield to the notion of a God who condescended into our realm. It would be simply too outrageous to think so. That God actually has a body. But because he does have a body, he's able to experience poverty and persecution, be slandered and libeled. He knows hunger and pain, how it feels to be beaten and sped upon, or be stabbed and speared, to be thirsty and weary. He tasted humiliation and even death. So add to this idea the notion of the resurrection, and you will find a God concerned about justice. God is going to enforce justice in due time for everyone who has ever lived. Since he has shown he will redeem both body and soul, we can fight for social justice now then with confidence so that it will ultimately prevail. And people do matter to God. And they should have roofs over their heads at night, clothes to wear, food to eat, and clean water to drink. See, God cares about our physical well-being and the problems we have there just as much as he does about our spiritual ones. The difference between a Christian and just any liberal who clamors for legislation that will meet these needs for the poor is that we can have an absolute assurance that justice will eventually triumph someday because of God's demonstrated concern for it. Plus, we know the needs of the poor presently extend beyond merely the physical. People need also to have some self-respect, that is, to have standards to live up to and the responsibility they're willing to assume for themselves. And their greatest need always remains to have a restored relationship with their creator, which, when that occurs, will also provide them with the internal resources sufficient to become and remain 
independent of welfare. Amen. So when we understand that blessedness expressed in Elizabeth's proclamation, one can join Mary in her song of worship and share that passion she expressed for that justice which God will ultimately bring about in his own time. We look forward to that very soon. Well, thank you once again for joining me. I hope uh, if you have any questions, you'll uh, uh, send them in and uh, I'll try to respond in kind when I receive them. God bless you. This is Kim Nicolaitis with Advent Christian Voices. 